Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Russell Moore is a familiar name in theological circles, but in his eight years as the president of the policy arm of the powerful Southern Baptist Convention, he became more widely known for his withering criticism of Donald Trump a position that put him at odds with many in the conservative evangelical movement that became Trump's strongest base. Now public theologian at Christianity Today and a Pritzker fellow at the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics, Moore sat down with me this week to discuss his journey and the sometimes uncomfortable intersection between faith and politics. Here's that conversation. Russell Moore, so good to be with you, and so good to have you at the Institute of Politics. You've you've been an incredible presence around here, and I influenced a lot of young people. And so happy to have you. Well, thank you. It's been a joy to be here, and I'm I'm really impressed with the students here at the Institute of Politics. Yeah, well, I'm eager to talk about them uh, as part of this conversation later on because I'm I'm eager to hear what kind of dialogue you've had. Clearly, that you you've been challenged. Uh, by them, and I'm I'm eager to hear how you how you deal with that in an era in which tolerance and grace are not uh, lead uh, lead qualities in our public discourse. So, uh, regrettably, right. but right. I want to first uh, uh, explore your own uh, story, and uh, which begins primarily in Biloxi. Yes, uh, yes, I grew up in Biloxi, Mississippi, and uh, all of my family was there. And uh, which is Biloxi is when people think Mississippi, they think of Tupelo. Uh, this is more New Orleans. It's right over the state line from New Orleans. So heavily uh, immigrant population, mostly Catholic. Um, Mardi Gras, uh, sort of a sort of a place. Immigrant from Latin America? Or? No, uh, immigrant uh, from uh, Serbia mm. and uh, Czech Republic area. Interesting. Um, and then and then also uh, Vietnamese immigrants after um, after the fall of uh, Vietnam, massive numbers of Vietnamese refugees. And what was the dynamic in the community relative to to immigration and immigrants? What what? Were there ten- tensions in the community, or were were immigrants well accepted in the community? I think largely well accepted. I, I do remember a great deal of uh, fear in the community when the Vietnamese uh, population first arrived. I remember being a kid and hearing people say, on the one hand, these people are coming in to take our welfare dollars. They're going to be dependent on the state. And these people are taking all of our jobs uh, in the seafood industry. And knowing <laughs> both of those things can't be true at once, <laughs> one or the other. And, of course, neither uh, ended up being true. And they're a, they're a vital part of the community now. We have echoes, of course, of that debate in our 
politics today. Yes. We'll talk about that. But um, your, your family was always deeply, faith was deeply ingrained in your family life. Your, your grand, grandfather was a pastor, is that right? My grandfather was a pastor, pastor of the, the church I grew up in. My dad, not as much. My dad had more of a conflicted uh, relationship to the church because he grew up a pastor's kid. So he had seen the sort of behind-the-veil dynamics, which are really similar to life in a, a political leader's home. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he had um, he, he saw it as a, when I told him that I was planning to go into ministry, it was almost as though I was telling him that I had been arrested because <laughs> he said, I'm going to support you, whatever you do, but I don't want you to get hurt. You know, uh, that's so. I mean, I've done so many of these now, and um, often talking to people in politics and some whose fathers were in politics, mostly fathers. And um, yeah, that approach aversion thing is very strong yes. uh, among them. So it's interesting. It's interesting that you, you put it in those, uh, in those terms. Speaking of, uh, and your dad was, I should point out, he was an FBI agent. Uh, and then he came back to Biloxi and went into sales. Yes, he was working in the car business, and mm-hmm. um, yeah, he he just died this past year. So mm-hmm. in in the year of pandemic and loss, um, yes, it's been on my mind quite a bit. Yeah, well, I'm so sorry for your for your loss. You had your own experience at, when you were twelve that sort of ushered in your passion, your. Your, your deep belief. Tell me about that. The religion became my own when I was about 12, where I was uh, convinced of the truth of the gospel. And I also was feeling a pull toward ministry uh, shortly thereafter. But when I was 15, I went into a, a major time of spiritual crisis. And uh, quite a bit of it actually had to do with politics, uh, because I was looking around at, not in my congregation particularly, but just in the broader Bible Belt, uh, racism. Uh, I was looking at um, the sort of scandal uh, that, that we now have seen quite a bit, uh, unfortunately. And I was looking at the use of, of politics, where I could see these voter guides, for instance, that would uh, end up at, in churches that would have the Christian view and the non-Christian view, and they just happened to line up with all of the issues that, a, that, that whoever the church was supporting as a candidate had. Uh, and so it, it seemed like a really cynical use of the faith to argue that there's a Christian view of the balanced budget amendment or mm-hmm. the line item veto. And so that caused me to wonder, well, what if this ultimately is just politics? Uh, which means it's it's just a means to an end. And that was a deeply distressing uh, thought to me. Now, thankfully, I had I'd read the Chronicles of Narnia so many times as a child that I recognized the name of C.S. Lewis on the spine of mere Christianity, and I brought it home from the bookstore. It was transformative to me, not so much in terms of the arguments, because my problem wasn't intellectual. Uh, my problem was am I being sold something? And so you could, you could just tell from the, for lack of a better word, tone of voice coming through that book, that this was someone who wasn't selling me anything. He, he was pointing to something deep and rich and ancient. Uh, and that, that helped turn my life You around. know, what is it that drew you in? What is it, what was the, the truth that drew you in uh, and, and made you uh, such a deep believer? <laughs> 
Well, the figure of, of Jesus and um, reading the Gospels and, and recognizing this uh, person was, was transformative for someone who grew up singing, yes, Jesus loves me and all the things that you do in Southern Baptist uh, Sunday school to actually come to believe this is a person who loves me and this person is uh, alive and is worth following. That's what was that's what was transformative. And to see that uh, some of the things that present in my home church were culturally bound. I, I could see that very early. But at the heart of it, it was connected to uh, something something ancient and historic that's that goes all the way back to the first century. You know, you mentioned the politicization uh, of the church. That was just about that period when the Christian coalition was coming into prominence. Right. Uh, Pat Robertson was deeply involved in, yes. in that. Ultimately, uh, Ralph Reed became sort of a, a political operative turned um, organizer of uh, of the Christian coalition. Put that in historical context for where we are today. How is that? What is the threat of continuity between what we see today? And, and what do you think that has done to... Uh, the, the the church, the Southern Baptist Convention, to evangelical uh, movements in general. Well, the the first president I remember, I was five years old when Jimmy Carter was elected, yeah. and at that time there was no predicting on the basis of where someone went to church or didn't go to church whether that person had voted for Carter or Ford. As a matter of fact, most people that I knew were elated that Jimmy Carter was elected because uh, he was one of us. He was a you know, first president from the Deep South uh, since the Civil War, and he was uh, a born-again Christian. Uh, so that didn't narrowly sort people out into, into categories. That, of course, changed quite a bit as we moved into the 1980s and, and then beyond. Uh, some of that, I think, uh, because of changes in the Republican Party, but some of it because of changes in the Democratic Party as well. So there were there were people who uh, came to conclude the Democratic Party doesn't want us, and so let's ask who does. At the same time that you had people who understood that uh, religion is a a powerful organizing tool, which is exactly what I was worried about as a as a fifteen year old. Uh, I do think that there are social and political implications uh, to what the Bible teaches. That forms us into people with consciences that ought to pay attention to uh, to specific matters, but it doesn't come with a voter registration card, and that's what has changed quite a bit. If you look at the racial differences uh, between white evangelicals and black evangelicals, for instance, it could not be a more it could not be more of a contrast than than that which tells me that something's going on culturally and sociologically uh, much long before it's happening theologically and congregationally. I think about the civil rights movement, which mm -hmm. very much emanated from the black church, Dr. King and others. How would you characterize that compared to what you saw evolving in the 80s? Well, I had a, a student here at the IOP who asked when I was talking about grievance-based politics that we see now, who said, well, 
wasn't the civil rights movement grievance-based uh, politics? Didn't uh, Dr. King have grievances? And yes, of course, there were there were specific uh, problems uh, to which he was pointing the, the bigger system of Jim Crow, but then also uh, the Montgomery bus system and, and so forth, specific instances. But ultimately, it was about changing these structures and about persuading the people on the other side. I mean, when when King was speaking, he's speaking with the kind of moral imagination that assumes that the people who disagree with him right now can be persuaded, uh, and if not, that their children and their grandchildren uh, could be persuaded. That's just an entirely different mode of, of activism than what we often see now, which is actually not speaking to the other side. It's, it's speaking for applause from one's own side. And, and that, keeps, that, that keeps even the, the imaginative appeal of persuasion from happening. Mm-hmm. Speaking of politics, you took a detour. Yes, uh, from your your from your at least your career path mm-hmm. uh, into politics. Yes, and you worked for a a congressman, uh, Gene Taylor from uh, from Mississippi, who was a Democrat. Yes, um, ultimately was defeated in two thousand ten. But um, tell me about that decision. I know you you studied political science and so on in college. Um, did you? Was it your notion that you were going to take that path? Yes, that was at the time I, I thought I was going to take that uh, take that path. And those years with Gene were formative in ways I can't even describe because I noticed working for him that when I would talk to other people, when I started out as an intern on Capitol Hill in the summer, talk to other people uh, who had reason to be ashamed of their members of Congress and would talk about, can't believe what this uh, member of Congress I'm working for is doing. I was seeing somebody who actually was the same person on the House floor (laughs) as he was driving around the district campaigning. Uh, And I also saw someone for whom integrity really mattered. I mean, this was somebody who was out of step uh, really, at at every point, he was a Democrat in a majority Republican district. Had a lot of pressure to switch parties, and he said, "I I, I won't do it." And he was a very conservative Democrat, uh, pro life, fiscally conservative, very very pro military, uh, and he had a lot of pressure uh, from his own caucus to change, and he wouldn't do it. So I I would go with him sometimes at what I kind of would call heresy trials where he would be with the the base criticizing him for not uh, I remember one time being with him with a a democratic county committee that was they were really upset that he had said in 1992 this was that if the presidential election went to the house of representatives which at the time was a possibility Ross Perot was in the race yes. at the time that if it went to the house of representatives he would vote for whoever received a plurality in the 5th Congressional District of Mississippi. Uh, they, they wanted an assurance that he would vote for, for Clinton. Bill Clinton. Yes. yes. Well, I knew Gene didn't even vote for Clinton uh, himself uh, in the general election and, and, and never did, to my knowledge. Uh, but he, he wouldn't do it. And so I, we left that meeting. It was very heated. I was driving him, and I was shaking. I was so nervous. And he just sat down in the car and said, all right, let's— and started talking about something else. And I said, are you not 
thrown by that. Just a, who, who cares about that? You know, you know, I'm here for my constituents, not for, for that. So I was able to see that sort of side of him in a way that in many ways reaffirmed my belief in the possibilities of politics. So I didn't leave that. I didn't leave the leave Gene Taylor world cynical or disillusioned by politics at all. It wasn't that sort of. It was just that uh, I remember going to the Library of Congress. They would have discard books that congressional staffers can take, and I would get all sorts of books. And one of them was a a guide to doing weddings and funerals. And I remember not even thinking about it. And then when I was at home later that night thinking, why did I want this? And that sort of caused the process of, of rethinking the path of my life, but not because I concluded that something was ugly or wrong with politics. That would come later. And you just, yeah, <laughs> you decided to go down another road. You trained and you became a, a pastor and you had sort of this, I would say, meteoric rise in the Southern Baptist convention how did how did that happen well i mean it, it was uh it's something similar to what i said to a, a student this morning who was thinking through trying to plan his life and I, I i sensed that he was trying to avoid uh going in a wrong direction and i said look you can't plan it out with that detail usually you look backward and you see how things that you thought were cul-de-sacs uh, actually come together in, in what it is that you're you're called to do. And I think that's true for people in, in virtually every yeah. vocation. And that certainly was true for me. I, I would see all of these various influences that tended to, to come together. And uh, I was uh, utterly devoted uh, to the Southern Baptist Convention because um, I had, my experience was, very different from that of my dad. I, I grew up in a congregation that was loving, was cohesive. I never, uh, never really saw the dark side uh, as I'm growing up. So when I thought about the church, and particularly when I thought about the Southern Baptist Convention, I, I thought about something that was. Um, they were the people who had introduced me to Jesus, and I uh, really believed in what we were we were doing together. Ultimately, you became the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, which is the policymaking uh, uh, arm of the Southern Baptist Convention. Tell me how you thought about that job. I mean, there were obvious issues uh, that are associated with uh, with the church, that, you know, relative to abortion and mm-hmm. and gay rights and so on. We'll talk about that. But you emphasize things like immigration and particularly refugees. You've, you had a, a history of leadership on those issues. H- how did you choose the issues that you wanted to emphasize? And what was the, what was the philosophy that you brought to that job? Were you trying to reorient? I came into office, uh, my predecessor, uh, Richard Land, a very uh, well-known yes. uh, figure in the religious right, uh, had been through uh, a great deal of controversy Largely over his comments uh, after the the shooting of Trayvon Martin, uh, it was a it was a very tense uh, situation. I came into office really wanting to do two things. the The first thing is to help uh, Baptist Christians to think through the moral implications uh, of our 
of our faith on, on the full range of, of issues. And then only secondly, only after that, to speak to policies. So I, I was constantly working to sort of keep the order of priority uh, in, in line, in, in my view. And when it came to, for instance, the, the issues of immigrants and, and refugees, that really wasn't um, a deviation. Because if you look at uh, what the Southern Baptist Convention was adopting every year in their resolutions, uh, very pro-refugee, uh, pro-immigration, uh, pro-immigration reform, uh, going all the way back to uh, the, the Bush administration uh, and continuing since then. So what was also true is that one of the things that I learned uh, in this role, I remember working on immigration reform, for instance, being uh, in the Oval Office and being uh, in Congress, it became very clear that what really mattered when it came to immigration is who cared about it the most. And who typically cared about it the most were the 20% or the 25% who opposed it. Uh, They were the ones for whom that's the only issue, and that's what they're devoted to. But there were people who, for whom any talk of immigration is George Soros, conspiracy theories. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. It would be, I think, as it is in all aspects of analysis about Trump, it would be, I think, um, a mistake to say he created right. A set, you know, he created circumstances. He he capitalized on them. He made uh, turbocharged them. So you know, I was interested. I, I was talking to you uh, earlier about this splendid piece that uh, a, a person you and I both know you better than I, uh, Pete Weiner, wrote in the Atlantic uh, just recently called "The Evangelical Church is Breaking Apart," and he. Um, uh, you know, he talks about um, all the influences that have basically torn people away from, you know, the catechesis of 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 the church mm-hmm. and replaced it with cultural right. prompts, TV, radio, social media, Facebook, and so on. How have those worked to undermine the vision that you had that? you know, of moral teachings and so on? Well, I think there are a couple of ways. I mean, if you look at the national level, one of the things that's really concerning to me is probably the exact opposite of what would be concerning to to most people on the left. Most people on the left would probably be worried about um, the religious right becoming more and more theocratic and and more and more um, religiously extreme. I actually think that's not what's happening. What's happening is a secularizing of um, of Christian political action in some really troubling sorts of ways. Because there, there's a piece in the Hedgehog Review out of the University of Virginia uh, that I think is is brilliant about the changing shape of the culture wars, which noticed um, the the difference between even vocation of leadership. So you go from Jerry Falwell Sr., whatever you think of Jerry Falwell Sr., he was a preacher. 
uh, that, that it was coming out of uh, his role as a, a preacher, to Jerry Falwell Jr., who was a real estate de- developer. Uh, Pat Robertson, that you mentioned, was a broadcaster, but he he was coming to broadcasting from primarily this role of being a, a Bible teacher to talk radio hosts. I mean, that shift uh, ha- has been really dramatic just in terms of leadership. Then when you get to the congregational level, uh, what you have is, I think there's a sense of, uh, Walker Percy uh, writes in the moviegoer about uh, Binks Bowling in, in New Orleans, who would go to the public library and would read National Review and the New Republic together. And he said he didn't know if he was a conservative or a liberal, but the hate that they had for each other made him feel alive. Um, I think there's a very real sense where that is so present in American life and, and that bleeds over into congregational uh, life in a way where uh, what the Bible would refer to as a as a an unhealthy craving for controversy uh, starts to dominate every aspect of of life, and so I started seeing this happen. I think I'd the, let me just interrupt you and say it's it's not accidental because the business model of a lot of oh absolutely you know, whether it's talk radio yes. or um, or social media and the tech platforms or you know television and the way we've balkanized that. Um, you know, the, those business models rely on getting people to click and to stay on yes. and to watch. And uh, and, res- and that's the- resentment and hate is a pretty powerful uh, attraction. Yeah, and that's the opposite model of uh, when the primary issue is mission. Uh, so if, if what you see the rest of the world around you, if you see everyone as a potential future brother or sister in Christ, you, you really do have confidence in the power of the gospel that changes the way that you see people. Uh, people aren't then uh, able to be demonized because you actually believe in demons. And, you know, we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. So, but when that changes and when the, the incentive structure is toward the adrenal feeling of rage, uh, that, that takes on an entirely different shape. So I saw this, uh, I, I think, for the first time in maybe around 2009, 2010, when Glenn Beck had something called the Restoring Honor um, Rally or yes. something like yeah. that uh, in, on, the, on the National Mall in D.C. And what was disturbing to me is that I would see so many evangelical Christians that I knew on social media talking about how great it was that Glenn Beck is preaching the gospel. And I listened to that speech. He didn't preach the gospel at all. He was uh, talking about political grievances and, and issues. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but that's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it was, it was, easy, to, it was just easy to make that shift when there's, there's so much pressure to be part of a, a cultural, political tribe that gives identity. When that, when that is, is constantly facing people, it becomes very difficult for those people to step back and say, uh, I may be a Republican or a Democrat, but my priority is something else, which means I'm going to keep that 
at least uh, in to, to a, a little to a to a large degree at a distance. That's very difficult to communicate. Yeah, Weiner wrote for many Christians, their politics has become more of an identity mark marker than their faith. They might insist that they're interpreting their politics through the prism of Scripture with the former subordinate to the latter, but in fact, Scripture and biblical ethics are distorted to fit their politics. And, you know, we've seen this not just uh, in evangelical, uh, among evangelical Christians, but among faiths, uh, other faiths uh, as well, where faith then becomes a justification for political positions that are really not drawn from faith. Yeah. You know, our friend Adam Kinzinger uh, yes. in the House uh, tweeted the other day, uh, I've known lots of people who have left their churches over politics. I've not uh, met one person who has changed their politics because of their church. Mm-hmm. And um, that's that's sadly <laughs> really resonant right now. And it's dangerous. If, if you believe that you are, that your political positions are somehow a product of the gospel, it changes your orientation about the uh, urgency and and the rectitude of your positions. It makes it harder uh, to step back and have a reasoned discussion. Well, and not only that, there's this sense of, I when I first went to the ERLC, I told my wife, if you ever hear me say the words, this is the most important election in our lifetime, <laughs> to just take the keys away, because I had heard that every four years. I, I never heard anyone say, you know, this election isn't the, it's important, but it's not uh, ultimate. But they can't all be the most important election uh, in our lifetimes. But there's this sense of uh, total victory or total defeat uh, that, that comes into people's minds where we're either going to be exuberant in our winning or we're going to be totally defeated in our, our losing. And so the, the winning and the losing yeah. becomes an existential We've now threat. taken it one step beyond, which is we're not going to accept losing. Correct, yes. We're not going to accept any l- loss as a legitimate reflection of public opinion, which in a democracy is a death now. Nuance is not an incentive structure. And so to be able to come in and say, this political leader I think is mostly wrong, but I can work with him or her on these sets of issues we agree agree on, uh, becomes a threat to tribal identity in a way that's very, very difficult to undo. What's, What's changed in the last few years, I was seeing these dynamics at the Washington level and at the, the political level, but now I'm seeing them all over the place at the congregational level, where what I'm hearing from every day are pastors who are beleaguered because uh, they're trying to figure out what to do about masks, uh, for instance, during the uh, the height of the, the COVID pandemic, uh, and their congregations are at each other's throats over that. It's not the same thing as just, well, we're trying to decide what to do. It becomes a question of who's going to win and who's going to lose, or a pastor I knew who simply prayed uh, sometime around the inauguration for President Biden and Vice President Harris. This is not an unusual thing to do in an evangelical context. We're commanded, First Timothy 2, to pray for governing authorities, but he had someone stand up and start yelling, uh, that's not the president. Uh, you know, so so even these, it's not just that you have pastors who are facing backlash because they're taking uh, courageous stands on refugees, 
uh, that's that's true and that happens. But even the people who are are not really interested in addressing these political issues at all are facing this. Or um, a pastor that I talked to recently, all he did was to pray for the family of George Floyd uh, after the murder of George Floyd and has dealt with a backlash of uh, his being a critical race theorist uh, ever since. I mean, that sort of thing has now... It, it has it has gone down to the congregational level and to the family dinner table in a way that has really flipped a, a lot of the the concerns. When ten years ago, uh, I would have parents concerned about their children leaving home and secularizing and losing their faith. Now, what I'm hearing are children, uh, adult children, who are saying, "What do I do with my mom and dad?" who have become radicalized on Facebook or... Uh, and it is, it is a, there is a generational yes, split Yes, there's here. definitely a generational split. And that's, that, that was another thing. I was, uh, I was able to say, well, there is a generational shift happening in evangelicalism, which is true. The, the old dynamics don't apply to the younger generation, not because the younger generation is liberalizing. If, if anything, they're theologically more conservative than their parents and grandparents were, but because they're very suspicious of any cynical use of the faith. You know, it does speak to the fact that even in the pastoral role, if you're trying to get people to come into, to come to the church, to fill the seats, to fill collection plates, to listen to you, there is a lot of pressure to appeal to what sells. Right. Oh, that's exactly right. That's, that's always been the case, and it's constantly the case. The, the difference is now uh, that applies to absolutely everything. So a, a friend of mine and I were talking about uh, the pressure that's on pastors right now to be not only uh, biblical exegetes and theologians, political scientists and pollsters, uh, public health experts and epidemiologists, uh, to, I mean, all of these things so that if they, uh, one pastor said when the Biden administration uh, sent down the vaccine mandate, he had people in the congregation saying, your silence is deafening. And he said, I don't even know what this policy, I don't know OSHA policy. I, 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 how, how can I be expected to be an expert in that? Uh, that's that's what's happened in American life, and I wish I could say that congregations are exempt from it, but they're not. I mentioned Trump earlier. When he ran for president, he was the object of suspicion at first among evangelical mm-hmm. uh, voters. Over time, they became his strongest supporters, and there is nothing from my observation that would necessarily recommend him as a human being. Uh, right. Donald Trump, I think his, his, his deep faith is in Donald Trump Correct. and not, not anything else. And you were very outspoken about him yes. from the beginning. Tell me what that experience was like as he was becoming the dominant political voice, and I'd argue more than a political voice, like a cultural leader, a, you know, a, a white identity leader. Yeah. You were outspoken in your criticism. Yes. It, it, <laughs> I mean, this wasn't a figure that was unknown to us. This wasn't someone who was having to introduce himself to the American people. Any of us who were alive in the 1980s remember uh, all of the Donald Trump news. And then uh, I remember 
uh, being really concerned as early as 2014, I think, uh, when the Ebola uh, issue was was happening. And Donald Trump had criticized uh, missionaries uh, who were trying who had were treating people with Ebola and were trying to get back into the country to get medical treatment and said something along the lines of they they knew what they were doing. They chose to do this and they should pay the consequences, uh, which I thought was a reprehensible comment. And then you, you add to it all of the other things. What I found was that when I first started talking about this, most people in the evangelical social conservative world agreed with me. Uh, they weren't as outspoken as I was, but they didn't disagree with me about uh, any of it. As a matter of fact, when I did the op-ed um, in the fall of 2015 about uh, evangelicals who are supporting Trump are betraying their own professed values. Um, many of the people who later became key figures of support for Donald Trump were the people calling me to say, finally, someone is expressing uh, what I think. Thank you for, for saying this. Then that started to, to shift, uh, not because Donald Trump changed, uh, but because he started winning. And uh, so there was a a figure who I was listening to a radio program one time where she said she was talking about evangelicals and Donald Trump. And she said, you can just see Russell Moore going through the stages of grief throughout the 2015-2016 election because first it was, well, evangelicals aren't supporting him, which was true. And then well, church-going evangelicals aren't supporting him. These are nominal evangelicals, which was true at the time. Then, well, evangelicals are supporting him, but because they see it as a lesser of two evils calculation, which was largely true at the time, uh, but then it didn't hold. And that, that was my big concern because I had, I had seen this pattern happen before, even with people who weren't trying to uh, demagogue. Uh, where the the tribal leader changes uh, changes the base, and so the people who would say, and one one person, a good friend, said to me, "I'm I'm not voting for one person. I'm voting for a thousand people. I'm voting for an administration. I'm voting for judges. I'm voting for these things." Okay, that's a reasonable case. It wasn't the case I made. It wasn't the conclusion I came to, but it's a reasonable conclusion. Problem is. Very few people were then able to say, okay, I'm voting for this person, and then I plan to mm -hmm. uh, hold him accountable to say this is, this is awful behavior or so forth. That didn't happen. Instead, it wasn't that So why, Russell? What, what made him, what allowed him to take such hold within the evangelical community? Was it the white identity politics? Was it his... Uh, you know, his embrace, I mean, he had been a pro-choice mm -hmm. person till shortly before the election, but then became an advocate for judges and uh, who would, you know, uh, who would overturn Roe versus Wade and yeah. uh, so on. What, what is it that... Well, I think to some, there are many evangelicals for whom the, this was the for the same reasons as the general public, general Trump supporter and evangelical Trump supporter would have the same sort of calculation. And I think one sort of key defining moment was in the debate with Hillary Clinton. When she said on the stage, when asked about late-term abortion, when she gave an answer that didn't even 
work through the moral implications at all, didn't even acknowledge, I can see why people would find this to be awful. That was a moment where I saw even many very reluctant Trump supporters turn into committed Trump supporters. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. You periodically, I think when Charlottesville happened, you were outspoken about that and so on. How much pressure did you come under within... uh, Oh, the it, conference to just pipe down uh, constantly. I mean, I I, <laughs> I was in and out of heresy trials basically for five years. So I mean, maybe the most uh, after Access Hollywood, when Access Hollywood happened, the tape that yeah. in which Trump was profanely discussing his exploits right with women in a really disgraceful way. Right. I assumed. Anyone listening to that tape would conclude that this is not a person who is fit uh, to be in public office. Certainly people uh, who have been warning us all for years about moral relativism and about sexual anarchy and and these sorts of things. uh, I assumed that that they would see this and say, "That's that's a step too far. And when I spoke to that, I was immediately, um, getting unbelievable uh, pushback from from people who are saying, you know, how can you criticize someone who's on our side? And and I would say, well, who's our uh, here? I mean, this is, a, I didn't sign up to be on Donald Trump's side. I signed up to be on the side of Jesus Christ. And so you would have these sorts of constant, constant pressures uh, to meet with groups of people who were upset. We had uh, some people uh, who uh, threatened to withhold money from uh, the convention's missions program uh, because I wouldn't support Trump. And, and these, these sorts of things. I remember at one point, uh, I was, uh, this was actually uh, after the defeat of Trump, and someone was uh, in one of these meetings criticizing me for, and said, why don't you just commit now that you will not criticize our elected officials. And I said, okay, so let me just get this right. You are opposed to my criticizing President Biden last week about the attempt to repeal the Hyde Amendment. Oh, no, no, that was good. I said, so what you're saying is, what you're asking me to commit to is not that I won't criticize elected officials, is that I won't criticize this group of elected officials. Yeah. Well, that's not what uh, that's not what I was. We have a phrase called surrendering to ministry uh, in my tradition. When I walked down the aisle and committed my life to ministry, that's not what I was signing up for. Uh, I was I was signing up to follow Christ, which means to speak honestly to people and to say, "Here are here here is how I see this. You can do with it what you want, but." I mean, the the shift from the Clinton, Bill Clinton era uh, to the Donald Trump era, there wasn't even, it wasn't as though you had people saying, I really wrestled with this question of moral character, and I've come to conclude it actually doesn't matter. Almost no one said that. Instead, it was, well, 
Yes, but think of how high the stakes are. Did you see this as choosing between Christ and choosing between Trump? For me, I saw it as choosing between my conscience under Christ and saying things that I didn't believe. Mm-hmm. So uh, it would have been it would have been easy to say, well, this is who most of our people, this is who they're with, and so I'm going to get on board. But to do that, I I would have I, I couldn't have done it. I, I I couldn't have lived with myself and I couldn't I have five sons. Um I couldn't have communicated that to them. So there never was a moment, I never had a moment where I thought, maybe I'll get on board with Donald Trump. That uh, Now, what I did think was, after he was elected, well, uh, let's give him a chance in the way we do any other president. Let's hope that uh, he takes seriously this office, that he tries to unite the American people and... Uh, yeah, how'd that work out? Yeah, it worked out. You talked about his abuse of women and his moral values. You you resigned earlier this year from your position. Yes. And you wrote a letter that became public, and it was a scathing letter about uh, the unwillingness to take on sexual abuse within the church, to take on racism within the church. The intimation, not more than the intimation, this was that you had tried to fight these battles and were rebuffed. Tell me about that. Well, I'll, I'll tell you what is encouraging. Uh, the, the, the discouraging is there. The encouraging is, again, as I said before, most people uh, at the congregational level actually want to, in my perception, actually want to do the right thing. And I saw a shift from uh, over the last decade, when I first started talking about issues of sexual abuse, there would be, um, you, you would usually have to persuade people that this actually is a problem. People would say, well, that's something that happens. The Catholic Church doesn't happen with us, or that may happen somewhere, but it wouldn't happen in our congregation because we know each other. That that started happening less and less, and people started uh, recognizing uh this is a serious problem and this could happen here. Didn't though happen with everyone. What was the concern among the leadership that you conf- who you confronted that they would lose churches, that pastors would disassociate themselves? What, what is it? Didn't want the taint on the church? I don't know. I can't really speak to anyone else's motivations. I can only tell you my motivations were in coming across so many people who had been sexually abused and assaulted in a church context and seeing what had happened. To to me, uh, this is the most reprehensible thing that can possibly happen, not only because because it's self-evidently an awful thing, but because it's an awful um, assault on someone that is allegedly uh, in the name of Jesus, in the safest place they could possibly be. And so to think about, you know, my own home church that really was um, a, a home uh, for me and, and in which there was this circle of, of trust in those people, to think of that being used in any church context, it's awful in any context, but especially in a church context, 
I think is is one of the most horrible things that can happen. What about race? Well, because you've said this is for something that struck you from the time you were a child. Yes, yes. I remember uh, being really little um, in Sunday school and having a, a Sunday school teacher say, because we would bring these little envelopes uh, that would have our offering in it, you know, a quarter in it uh, for, for offering. And I had taken the quarter out and put it in my mouth. And she said, don't put that quarter in your mouth. You, a black man may have touched that. And I remember thinking at the time, this doesn't really line up with singing Jesus Loves uh, Little Children, All the Children of the World. I mean, th- th- those two things can't really go uh, together. So, yes, that's, that's also, I think, um, a matter of integrity and credibility because this is one of the, the very first things addressed uh, by the newly formed Christian church is how do you have together in one body uh, people for whom there are, are great ethnic and religious, uh, prior religious divisions between Jews and Gentiles? Uh, the gospel uh, unites those people into one body and says that we're to bear one another's burdens, which means that when you have um, African-American Christian moms who are worried about their sons, uh, going out at night. That's my problem too. They're worried about what the what will happen if their sons get stopped by the police. That's now my problem too. Or when, as one uh, African American pastor um, said to me one time, he was he was going through college applications with his son, and he was praying that he wouldn't get into some schools because he thought they would be unsafe for him as a young black man. And to realize that's. There are many things that I would be considering as I'm going through college applications, but I would never have to consider that. So how does white identity politics overcome? How has it become such a dominant force? And was it exacerbated by the election of the guy I worked for, the first African-American president? What impact did that have? I don't think it was created by that at all. Yeah, I think it goes back to Cain and Abel, because I think this is, uh, I think there's something about racism that is at its root, and I mean this literally satanic, in the the prizing of one's own flesh and the demonization of another person created in the image of God. I think there's something deeply, deeply twisted about that. And that that certainly goes back a, a very long time. The whole thing, but the whole thing, Russell, birtherism. Yes. And, oh, yes, yes. And Trump was in the middle of that. Was that an inflammatory thing? For me, not as much, because I would find the birtherism and that sort of thing uh, much more often among people who were not church going mm. um, for all sorts of reasons. I mean, the Cato Institute did a study that surprised a lot of people, didn't surprise me at all, that when you had the, the more evangelistic a church was trying to share mm-hmm. the gospel with people, the, the, the less xenophobic that congregation uh, mm-hmm. would be and the more likely they were to care for refugees and immigrants that doesn't surprise me at all so the the sort of furthest fringes of the birtherism stuff i i found a lot more in nominal uh, religion than i found with at least uh, expressly within the church now there was a lot of concern with the obama administration and a lot of that uh, i shared on some religious freedom issues and so forth but that that sort of uh, white identity grievance uh, 
I didn't see as much during the Obama administration as I would see later. When Trump came along. Yeah. You know, Donald Trump is a guy who does not believe in rules or laws or norms or institutions. And he really believes that the world belongs to the strong Mm -hmm. and that anything you do in your self-interest is right. And anything you don't do in your self-interest makes you weak. Mm -hmm. And that that whole presentation, that whole sense seems to have been embraced by people at least around the evangelical movement, but just more broadly among his 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 followers. I mean, what do you make of all of that? Well, I became really alarmed when I heard an evangelical uh, leader defending uh, Trump say he's not one of these weak-kneed, turn-the-other-cheek guys. And I'm really thinking, how do you hear yourself saying that would turn the other cheek as a direct quotation from Jesus Christ? Um, and so I, I have, I've seen this shift happen with some people uh, with, I mean, for instance, uh, Jerry Falwell Jr., um, he and I had a, had a tussle over migrant children. Uh, I simply said, hey, we can do better than separating moms from kids at the, at the border. His response on social media was to say, you've never built a business. <laughs> and, and made payroll. And I'm thinking, how how is that the qualification to speak to the moral treatment of people created in the image of God? But it's a, that's that's why I'm saying what what concerns me is that um, it's not that these religious groups come into the political arena and shift it. It's that the political arena often shifts us. I want to ask you uh, about your your friend Mike Pence, and I know you were close. I remember when Trump chose him, and the explanation that you heard in political circles was Trump needed to certify himself to the evangelical movement with whom Pence had a close relationship. Mm -hmm. He ended up being kicked to the curb at the end because he wouldn't certify, decertify the election, as it were. What parable do you see in Pence's journey well i mean it's it's hard to see someone who could be more loyal and and i think i think for entirely good reasons i really don't think that mike pence is a sycophant um i think he i think he saw the example of george hw bush of a vice president who knows he's vice president and isn't trying to be uh president and who's loyal and he he was that both uh i i think you can talk to anybody who's ever been in a meeting with Mike Pence. No one's ever heard him say a negative or even just sort of an eye-rolling kind of, can you believe this guy? He never did that publicly or privately. And he may be the only person in the administration. Even, even when people were shouting, hang Mike Pence, and yeah, Trump did yeah. not intervene? Right. Well, I mean, that's that's what I'm saying is the, the, the sad end point is what happened on January 6th, um, which... When I saw that happening, I was filled with with rage, and I had many people calling and saying, well, you're vindicated now on Trump. Everyone uh, sees it. And I said, no, I've learned my lessons from Access Hollywood. What's going to happen is everyone's going to see the horror of this for a few days, uh, and then people are going to find a way to push it out of the way and say it doesn't matter. And sadly, I think that's what happened. Do you foresee a Trump resurgence? And if so, how concerned are you about that? I don't think there's ever been a Trump desurgence. I mean, I I think that there were many people who said, and I had someone uh, in elected office say to me, "You, you don't understand how Republicans work. When you lose an election, it's who's Richard Nixon. 
right. uh, and, and they move on. And yeah. so once an election's over, then then the party will move on. Well, that's not happening. And uh, the people who are very who are in elected office who are alarmed about Trump, and there are a lot of them, but they they don't speak publicly, most of them. Uh, and so I don't think he's had any uh, any change in terms of the the support that he has. Uh, the question is, is there an alternative? Um, and and looking around the Republican Party right now, certainly is hard to see who could be an alternative for people's uh, for people's loyalty and, and and votes. So I think it's I think it's entirely possible that he could run in 2024 and win. You know, you talk about these religious freedom uh, issues. And uh, we're here at the Institute of Politics. When we announced that you were going to come, we got a a really concerned and thoughtful note from a young man who is gay. Mm-hmm. And he sent some of your writings, mm-hmm. casting homosexuality as sin. And he was deeply offended by that. There are plenty of students uh, here who are pro-choice and mm-hmm. believe that a woman should be able to make this those, those decisions at and uh, how do you have a dialogue with what? What do you say to those students when they confront you about your own deeply held views? And how do we have a dialogue in this society yeah. about these issues? Yeah. Well, I I could tell you um, I've been in uh, heresy trials that I'm too friendly toward LGBT people yeah. uh, in my in my context. Um, and what what I would often say in those settings is, uh, look if you're if you're going to if you're going to deal with uh, Roman Catholics who hold to Roman Catholic teaching and evangelical Christians who hold to evangelical Christian teaching and Orthodox Jews and Muslims who hold to the traditional tenets of those faiths, you you can't say in order for us to speak to one another, you have to give all of that up and become a Unitarian. I mean, that's not the way that we are going to be able to speak to one another. Instead, I think we have to uh, be in a situation where we're honestly in dialogue, and there are going to be uh, there are going to be times where you're not going to change two thousand years of Christian teaching in my mind. But uh, there are all sorts of other areas where, for instance, uh, I never gave much thought to reparative therapy. Uh, really, until I started hearing from people who had been uh, really harmed by that idea that they could go through uh, therapy and, and prayer and completely uh, change their their sexual orientation. I mean, we can learn from one another and in those sorts of areas, but I don't think we can demand that we uh, give up uh, all of our viewpoints before we have those dialogues. What about in the public? Square because part of your job was to uh, promote the priorities yeah. of the uh, of the conference. What about the idea that uh, w- we shouldn't enforce uh, enforce our our, uh, our private beliefs or our religious beliefs in the public square where there is where there are clearly uh, differences? It, well, yes, yes, and no. I don't think that we should. Um, impose uh, any uh, church's religious uh, teaching or any religion's religious teachings. There's an old uh, Baptist preacher who used to say, everybody wants theocracy and everybody wants to be Theo. Uh, 
<laughs> and I think that's uh, I think that's largely true, and it's a warning. Um, but I do think that we're going to come into the public square shaped and formed by the things that matter the most to us. So for people who are religious, that's often going to be uh, religious teachings. That doesn't say that you have to agree with me and that you have to conform, but it says I'm telling you why I care about this particular set of issues. And so with uh, with the, the major concern when it comes to some of these culture war issues for most church-going evangelical Christians is not that they're seeking to impose their views. I mean, there have been uh, attempts at doing well, what that. What about this law in Texas, for example, the uh, Texas abortion, the abortion law. law? When you come to the question of abortion, people say, well, you can't impose your religious views uh, on the question of abortion. What I would say is, Think about where our our debate is. Our debate is over where, whether we're dealing with one person or two people. And in my viewpoint, we're dealing with two people. We're dealing with a vulnerable woman and a vulnerable child. And we need to protect both of them and we need to, to love both of them. I can understand if people don't agree with me, but it, it's not imposing my view to do that any more than uh, when I'm working in the area of immigration, and I would have some people who would say, um, well, come in and talk about uh, how the Bible teaches loving the stranger and advocate for immigration reform. Okay. Uh, and then, then when I would talk about uh, issues of uh, abortion, uh, would say, well, you can't impose your, your biblical beliefs on us. Well, you just <laughs> you just wanted me to, and I think that both of those two things are uh, are legitimate. Because when I'm saying to Christians, you ought to care for immigrants, that's not imposing my my views on the uh, on the government. It's saying to the government, this is something you should care about. Russell, it's it's great to have you here, and uh, so appreciate you engaging with our students here. I know you've had some robust conversations, and I think probably both you and they have learned from them, and uh, and thank well, you so thank much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I love the Axe Files and listen to it every episode. Excellent. Well, you can listen to this one and tell me what I missed. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Allison Siegel. The show is also produced by Miriam Finder Annenberg, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Rafina Ahmad, Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.